Welcome to the Due Daily Podcast. I am Nick Boucher with Helios Quantitative Research. This show is designed to support financial advisors in the conversations that you are having with your clients. Each month, I'll be joined by Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel from our research team. We'll be taking a deep dive into recent and important events. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the November edition of the Due Daily Podcast. I am Nick Boucher, the Director of Marketing Operations at Helios, and I am joined, as always, by Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel. How are you guys doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing good. Happy to be here. Great and good. All right, cool. So we got a little bit of a spectrum going. It seems like we're all doing pretty positive, though. Let's dive right into it. We've got some interesting news going on. Uh, The corporate news has been interesting lately. Facebook has changed their name to Meta with an awkward video and a promise to be able to do virtual work meetings, which uh, clearly everybody has been clamoring for, as well as GE announcing that they were going to split up the iconic conglomerate into three companies. So what do you guys think about Facebook's very timely announcement? I'm sure it was based on nothing other than just wanting to change their name. And what do you guys think about what's going on? A real funny logo, too, when they unveiled it. (laughs) Yeah, it it coincided with a lot of heat they're taking. Just Congress is getting involved and just issues with Facebook, privacy, data that's been going on a while. More recently, just showing how social media apps like Facebook and Instagram, one of their companies, can cause depression in young children. There was rumors to be launching a kind of children's version of Instagram, which got put on pause and I think deservedly, they're, they're taking a lot of heat for, you know, what's been built over the past decade or so. So they changed their name and changed their name to Meta. And from a justification standpoint, they do more things than just Facebook now. They have their Oculus and they're, they're definitely investing a lot of money into kind of that virtual reality realm of the Metaverse. So the name, I guess, kind of makes sense. But funny that they did it. A really interesting knock-on effect is there's an ETF called the Round Hill Ball Metaverse ETF, and the ticker is M-E-T-A. The flows that have gotten in, gone into that thing over the past couple of weeks are insane. So it's just like, isn't that a microcosm of what our world is today, our investing world, where strange <laughs> things just happen. You know, people are now buying this ticker Meta based upon the Facebook news, and it really has absolutely nothing to do with oh, Facebook. That's- that's hilarious. That reminds me of uh, about five years ago, Pokemon Go came out, took over the world. And almost overnight, Nintendo's stock shot up 500%. And they said, hey, thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. We have nothing to do with this game, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but markets are efficient. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the, the, the one thing, the fifth largest holding in the Meta ETF is, in fact, Meta Platforms, or previously known as Facebook. So. Yeah, I mean, this has been going on for you know well over a week now. So it wasn't just like a little blip, and people realized that they bought something that they didn't think they're buying. Like people are still doing this. So I mean, it just goes to show you that people will see a headline or see a little name, slam something into their custodian, and just run with it without spending five seconds actually thinking about it. I, I'm sure zero cost trading for retail accounts has had nothing to do with it either. So that's what we are. We're in a video game. We've talked about it on here multiple times, but you got a lot of people sitting at home day trading now because there's seemingly no transaction cost that causes these weird nuances in our market. And it seems to be like with the GE news, they're splitting up into three different companies. Facebook is buying or has bought a lot of different things and is cobbling them together to make sure that they don't break them up. The FTC kind of filed suit against Facebook previously. And it's just like the old 
guard is kind of realizing that they gotten kind of too big for their britches and there's efficiencies to be made by splitting out and kind of the new kind of technocrats are kind of going the opposite way. So it's kind of a weird kind of cyclical effect of people breaking up and people kind of clamoring new things and bolting new things on in the new world. It's just a symptom of the, you know, this financial engineering where a company that is struggling like GE is, well, let's do something, let's break this apart where other companies, the the behemoths in the tech world are are buyers and they're doing a lot of acquisitions. So it's interesting to see the tactics by these boards and companies. And I think in this environment right now, where, where capital is easy to come by, we're at all-time highs in equity markets, it's a opportune environment to do these types of corporate transactions. Well, let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into the GE situation then. Um, does splitting up the company add any value for investors or what was the catalyst behind this? And would we expect for this to set a trend in motion where some of the bigger conglomerates start spinning off divisions? Do we see more of this coming? What do you guys think? I think you'll see. I mean, we've already seen a little bit in news of like uh, other old guard companies looking at you know spinning off divisions or splitting up. There's kind of an ongoing joke that 3M splits into you know the three different M's. <laughs> but when, you know when you think about GE, they did jet engines and light bulbs and kind of everything in between. So in some kind of intuitive sense, it makes a little bit of sense to kind of break those up, let them run and breathe a little bit more, and not be tied down in kind of a, a wider corporate structure. But at the same time, you see Google, Facebook, and every other tech company kind of buying up everything that's that's not nailed down that's pushing you know valuations higher and everything else so i think there needs to be some strategic sense into what these new companies are buying but the splitting up i think you know if those companies are operating well it can unlock uh, quite a bit of value that might have been kind of locked down in you know a lumbering conglomerate yeah i mean i think it made sense for ge too just where we are when you think of the kind of the three core businesses they're talking about it's aviation, healthcare, and energy. And those are seemingly very different businesses now. And I think the trajectory and growth in each of those is very different. It's not as harmonious as it may have been. Technology advancements aren't necessarily applicable across all three. And it's smart, I think, from a branding standpoint to not really poison the well with, you know, what's going on in one company versus the other. I'd say too, you know, maybe it's not appropriate for this, but just in this conversation, when we think about how much ESG investing has taken hold in our industry, that looking at these just big aggregate companies is GE's a, a leader in green energy with their energy business, but they also have an aviation business, which uses a lot of fossil fuel. So when you look at splitting this company into three, I think you can get attract a different type of investor for each one of the separate companies and not distract or detract people from investing in the the aggregate company. I mean, that's a good point, especially in the GE versus Facebook or tech world. You know, aviation, healthcare, and energy all have different capital requirements and return on capital kind of hurdles versus, you know, a Facebook versus an Instagram. Those are effectively the same. You know, they kind of have the same R&D profile, the same kind of capital requirements, the same return on equity profile if they're operating right. So there's a certain sense where that makes sense and we're splitting up different businesses that have different requirements also makes sense on the other side. It makes a lot of sense. Instead of trying to make one product that works for everybody, which is never going to work, you now have three products that work for three people perfectly. That's that's smart. Speaking of companies kind of stepping outside of their lane and doing a little bit more, the other day, Apple 
announced that they were releasing a car. So they had uh, filed some patents and a 3D concept was built based on that. What do you guys think about these companies stepping so far to their lane? And are you at all worried that Apple might slow their car down when they release their next model? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's part of the craziness we're seeing now. Rivian going public at, what is it now, near $200 billion company, the third largest U.S. automaker. Well, third largest auto company because they aren't actually making cars. It's insane. And I think Apple, given the amount of just cash, they're sitting, they're huge. They have so much cash. Why not? We can (laughs) waste $100 billion trying to build an electric car company, knowing that you can get infinite multiples of, of revenue or sales in the open market right now for, for getting into that industry. So it's smart. It's a diversifier. It's a decent gamble for them. If it doesn't work, doesn't work, but that is the future. And I think as you have more, I don't know if it's open source is the right word, but just the parts, the mechanics of an automobile with electric power are far less complex I would say, and far more tech focused. So these companies that have that tech expertise and not necessarily the engineering or manufacturing might have an edge in this arena where the traditional automakers used to be the only ones that had that edge. Well, and to Joe's first point, there's companies like Apple and Google that effectively just kind of vacuum up cash. They're struggling a little bit to figuring out, you know, what makes sense to do next with it. So you're seeing, you know, these type of things and you have Google has their self-driving car and, you know, a hundred other different uh, special projects where, you know, they can afford to throw some money around at things and just kind of see what sticks to the wall. Not that they're doing it carelessly, but they just have so much money that they couldn't reinvest all of their cash into like their iPhone brand or their Mac brand because there's just not enough juice there. Yeah, fair enough. And I'm still waiting on the uh, the Google Glass to kind of reach its final form. It seemed like a great idea. It looked really cool. I've been, you know, running around since I was a kid pretending that my glasses were telling me things. <laughs> You're still, aren't you still wearing the first version? Uh, no, it. Uh, I, I just got sick and tired of it saying waiting for a connection. <laughs> Jason still <laughs> uses his, his Zune MP3 player. <laughs> so we've got some uh, some big news in the world of crypto recently with the SEC approving the first Bitcoin ETF, which was the fastest ETF launch to reach a billion dollars in assets. Obviously, with how quickly it raised assets, there's a ton of demand there for it. What are your guys' takeaways on the approval and what it means for the industry and for advisors? I mean, the speed that it garnered assets and gathered assets was pretty wild. I mean, everyone kind of knew that there was a ton of pent up demand. There was a lot of speculation on when this would happen, you know, when the SEC would actually come out and approve a fund like this and whether it's futures based or, you know, at the, you know, the actual individual coin base didn't really matter. There's just a ton of demand. There's a ton of FOMO over the last several years in this space, a ton of interest. It's moving quickly a lot of people asking about it. And it's not a normal cycle of how things kind of come out and get released in the normal kind of corporate cycle. It's this kind of big thing that went to the moon, has this kind of rabid, devoted following, and a lot of people that are just kind of intellectually interested about it. So in some sense, it's a, it's a wild how it's wild how fast it raised a billion dollars. But at the same sense, like, when you look over the past couple of years, you know, it does make a ton of sense. And I'm sure there's going to be uh, much more demand flowing into it, you know, more competitors. There's already kind of a, a fee war going on in that space. But it, there's a lot of structural kind of nuances to it that investors and advisors should be aware of too. 
Yeah, I think the that nuance that it's not holding the asset of Bitcoin, but rather futures contracts on Bitcoin is the really risky component of these funds and why not that they that, that something will go chaotic, but the table's been set for it to happen and why we put caution with the advisors we work with in, in buying these products. We get the craze. We'd like to see the industry evolve. I think it's inevitable that, was it Vanek? I think their product just got declined that held actual Bitcoin, but it's coming down the pipeline. But if we look back to 2020, and I think everyone kind of remembers when oil went negative and you're sitting here saying, how can a tangible asset such as oil go negative? How could I actually have to pay somebody to take it? It was a function of how futures markets work. And it's not necessarily you're buying and selling liquid oil, you're buying and selling contracts for the delivery of oil. And that's ultimately what, in some respect, these Bitcoin funds are doing. They're buying and playing in the futures market. So when they're stable, when they're kind of moving like the spot price of Bitcoin, that's great. It's a very appropriate way to access exposure. But when you're dealing with these highly leveraged type markets, things can happen. They're often not foreseen and can be quick. So it's kind of almost buyer beware with the funds right now, as much as they want to put protections in place. I just wouldn't touch them until we see far more history and far more understanding of how they work and track the actual spot price. It does feel like there's an inherent conflict too with the ETFs holding crypto or you know futures of crypto, where the original premise was this is a decentralized way that we can democratize money and transactions and a host of other things. And now it's you know, now we have a futures market for it and these large financial institutions launching ETFs. So you go to your Fidelity or Schwab and buy an ETF sponsored by State Street, which in turn buying futures of this decentralized platform. It's just kind of an odd marriage too. Well, moving along, uh, perhaps not quite as wild of a ride as crypto, but ESG has been a growing trend over the last few years, and it doesn't appear to be letting up anytime soon. How should advisors position ESG with their clients, and how should they think about offering or expanding those capabilities? I mean, I think this trend has been kind of in motion for quite some time, but I think from what we've seen from advisors, there's been quite a bit of pickup in kind of demand side, investor side interest in this over the past, call it two years or so. And it seems to be getting to the point where, you know, more and more advisors are needing to have an answer to this question, just kind of off the top of their head and off the cuff have a position on it. But also just kind of it's getting to the point of being table stakes for a lot of advisory shops of, you know, when they're going out and appealing to generally the younger audience that are coming into more money as they grow older, that they're wanting to position their portfolio in some sense that aligns with their beliefs. And whether that's just kind of around the edges or a name or going to getting into more details, I think there's going to be more maturation in this industry. It's going obviously a lot slower than crypto, but I think it's growing to be table stakes within the advisor industry. Yeah. I think when you look at Europe, for example, they have far more interest and assets in quote-unquote ESG funds or, or portfolios. So there is a significant demand there and it's growing in the US. And like JVT said, it's with the younger population, you're seeing more interest. And so it's not going away. It is a generational thing. And I think this demand for personalized portfolios, which can be ESG, it can be biblical, it can be, you know, I'm looking for impact 
based companies. I'm looking for women leadership. I'm looking for minority owned businesses. What falls under that ESG umbrella is the big question. I, I like to make it a bigger umbrella and just say personalized type portfolios or personalized type investing. And technology is evolving in that space where you can do it. You can filter out or seek individual names based upon criteria. The the big people in that space like Morningstar are really evolving their products and screening tools. So I think for advisors, you're going to have to have a solution. Otherwise, you're going to potentially block off an entire segment of the population, especially people that are obtaining a lot of the wealth transfer here as we go forward. Yeah, I think there's institutionalization of that industry in terms of the data that's collected and it's available to investors and advisors. And the more that people demand it from the investor side, the more companies are reporting some of that data. There's growing talks of having some sort of requirements around certain level of reporting that corporations need to do. Um, So as that grows more sophisticated, there's just going to be more levers to pull to Joe's point, because there's a lot of different flavors and themes and versions of ESG. And, you know, one person's ESG might not be the next person's. I, I spoke with an advisor the other day. If he's listening to this, I know he'll he'll know it was him. But I posed the ESG question to him and he said, you know, what I tell my client, and this is kind of funny. He's like, the one of the biggest investors in green energy is BP, Better Petroleum. So <laughs> I'm not even going to dabble in that. He thinks it's all a little bit of, of window dressing. And I, I tend to agree because it's more or less a lot of a lot of the ESG principles are embedded in larger organizations, larger companies that also do anti-ESG activities. So how do you really get pure access to it? And honestly, people doing the most interesting stuff in the ESG space tend to be private, small companies anyway. So it's hard to get a really pure play on whatever theme you're looking for. And it seems like the core of the trend is people wanting to align their investments with their beliefs and have their money do good, essentially. But actually having that insight into what doing X or Y in their portfolio is accomplishing is it's hard. Is this just a feel-good endeavor or are these tilts actually accomplishing something? So if you're looking at it from a performance perspective, I would temper your expectations. I think what it does accomplish is, like we said, a, a feel-goodness for the end client, that they're doing something good with their money. And I can't argue with that. I think people, if they're going to deploy their investments, they would rather do it in something they agree with than just general indexing. So I I see it not going away, but really it's more of a a feel-good component than it is really a alpha investment justification. Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it from both angles. One, you know, with the growing demand, that's going to naturally impact flow and liquidity in kind of names that are quote unquote good in various ESG categories. But at the end of the day, a lot of people think like, you know, I don't want to give my money to X, Y, and Z company. But in the stock market, those are all, you know, secondary market transactions. You're not giving your money to Exxon. You're just giving your money to whoever sold you your their Exxon shares down the street. But at the same time, you know, the growing popularity of it, and especially kind of with larger institutions in Europe that Joe mentioned, but it growing worldwide, that is pushing companies to report more. So there is, you know, you might not get excess return out of it over the long term as, you know, people increase their reporting and kind of angle their ways. But we have seen companies kind of move and increase their reporting and at least pay lip service to it. So I can kind of see both sides of that argument. 
And it's kind of like the uh, the old, you know, cocktail party adage was everybody wanted to be in on the hot stock. I feel like part of that now is people like to be not only in on hot stocks because you're investing because you want to make money, obviously, but it's it's I, people like saying that they're involved in something that aligns with their core beliefs or, you know, is doing what they feel is making the world a better place. And people like being in on that sort of thing. Absolutely. Do we have anything else that we wanted to touch on? I feel like we hit the big three today, gentlemen. Was there anything else either you guys wanted to uh, touch on before we wrapped up today? Feeling good, feeling good. All right, well, we'd like to thank everybody for coming out to the Do Dilly podcast for November. I'd like to wish you a happy holidays in the meantime. I know we got Thanksgiving and a few others coming up soon, so enjoy some time with the family, hopefully. Keep an eye on your inboxes for all things Helios. I know we're going to be announcing soon our slate for offerings for 2022, so definitely keep an eye on the inboxes and on the socials. And in the meantime, I am Nick Boucher of Helios Quantitative Research, joined always by Joe Mallon and Jason Van Thiel. We want to thank you guys very much for your time and uh, thanks for stopping by the Do Dilly podcast. We will see you guys soon. Helios Quantitative Research is a DBA of Clear Creek Financial Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Helios Quantitative Research itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, tax, legal, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where our firm and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by our firm unless a client service agreement is in place. Helios Quantitative does not work with individuals and therefore does not provide personal financial advice. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Helios Quantitative Research does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made or given by or on behalf of Helios Quantitative Research as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including indirect, indirect, special, or consequential loss of damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2021, Helios Quantitative Research, LLC, all rights reserved.